good morning and welcome to another edition of Straight Talking English. I am your host, as ever, Catherine, STR8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com, and Patreon, Straight Talking English. If you like what I do and you'd like to support my show, check me out on there every dollar, because for some reason it's in dollars, every dollar helps, and my top tier donors will get an episode, a custom episode, fully researched of their choice. That is a good deal, team, I've got to say. So, part two of our mini-series. Last episode, we were talking about dreams, we were talking about the 1920s, dreams in of mice and men, and today we're going to talk about John Steinbeck and where he fits into the birth of his novella. Obviously, he wrote it, but where does he fit into it? Born in 1902 in the Salinas Valley in California, where, like, all of his work is set. This is how he describes himself. He said, Among the generality of men, I am tall, six foot even. Though among the males of my family, I am considered a dwarf. They range from six feet two inches to six feet five, and I know that both my sons, when they stretch their full height, will overtop me. I am very wide of shoulder, and in the condition I now find myself in, narrow of hip. My legs are long in proportion to my trunk and are said to be shapely. My hair is a grizzled grey and my cheeks ruddy, a complexion inherited from my Irish mother. My face has not ignored the passage of time, but recorded it with scars, lines, furrows and erosions. Days. He... He's always really, really weird about his appearance. His whole life, Steinbeck believed he was hideously ugly. And if you look at pictures of him, I mean, I wouldn't say he was a looker, but he's not, like, deformed. You know, I'm not in a habit of rating people by attractiveness. However, like, you know, he's not that bad. But he was convinced that he was this disgusting troll no one would ever love. My earliest memories of Salinas, he said, are so confused in my mind that I don't know actually what I remember and what I was told I remember. I'm fairly clear of the earthquake in 1906. My father took me down Main Street and I remembered brick buildings spilled outwards. Our wooden house was not injured, but the chimney had completely turned around without falling. Salinas was not a pretty town. It took a darkness from the swamps. The high grey fog hung over it and the ceaseless wind blew up the valleys, cold and with a kind of desolate monotony. The mountains on both sides of the valley were beautiful, but Salinas was not, and we knew it. Perhaps that's why a kind of violent assertiveness and energy, like the compensation for sin, grew up in the town. I mean... It's called Steinbeck Country now. There's like this museum, there's all these big stuff going on. And while he did really, really love the landscape, he had kind of this ambivalence to his childhood, to where he grew up. He never got on with his mum. One of his neighbours, who was interviewed later, said Mrs Steinbeck was always despairing about her son, trying to get him to achieve more than he did. She saw his brilliance and recognised his abilities, but found his misbehaviour and tendencies to be a loner exasperating. It seemed to her he should be doing better in school and should be more obedient at home. She pushed him to join clubs and church organisations, but he wasn't very willing, and sometimes he'd defy her and go back. She'd often said he'd either go to the White House as president or go to jail. So he had this really fraught relationship with his mum, which continued up even to her death, where he desperately wanted her approval. And she was all, tough love, you can do better, John. His parents were married, 
but his dad was not a successful businessman. He would work really hard, but then the business would collapse. He had mental health problems, he had depressive episodes, and that didn't help either in like being the role model that Steinbeck wanted. He wanted to have this like all-action dad, and what he had was a very human person struggling with his own problems and trying to keep a roof over his head. So, also disappointed, which is a little bit awful to be honest. He loved reading. It's one of these kids that from day one knew what they wanted to be when they grew up. To be fair, I'm 32 and I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I mean, I've said historian forever, but I also think sometimes being like a zookeeper would be nice. Like... You know, patting the, washing the elephants and feeding the camels. <laughs> Which I have to say, I would probably be terrible at, to be honest. I, I've ridden horses and that was enough for me. <laughs> but when he was 10, Steinbeck's aunt gave him a book about King Arthur. It's this really famous book called The Mort de Arthur, The Death of Arthur. And it's notoriously horribly dense. But he loved it. He was reading these really advanced texts and really getting into them. He wrote his school yearbook on his own, really. And he was that kid whose sister eclipsed him in popularity. Finished high school. He went to uni in Stanford. And he hated it. He hated the fact that even though he was studying English, he couldn't just sit and write all day. He actually, you know, had to do essays and study things and listen to other people. I mean, God forbid, God forbid that like a student listens to something. But he just got sick of it. And 1925, he dropped out. He travelled around doing, like weird kind of jobs. He worked on a fish hatchery looking after baby salmon. He was the caretaker for a country house. He moved to New York to try and be a reporter for a little bit but really 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 hated it. It was just like I hate New York it's destroying my soul. I mean this is the thing that comes across a lot in his writings. He would be such a pretentious edgelord today. The kind of person who would say like a horrifically racist joke and then be like oh but my IQ is so high that you just didn't understand why it was funny and found it offensive. When these people who like you know people are more real in some places. So I digress a second I used to live in China for three years and one of the things that me and my mate really really hated was people looking for quote unquote the real China but which they meant all like the twiddly diddly stuff that you saw in the background in martial arts movies you know people with like the conical hats and rice paddies and you know pagodas and stuff and yeah you can find that in the touristy bits but that that's mostly in movies and of course we're in the real china because we're, we're literally sitting in china but there was this guy who um we met at a bar who would say, oh, you know, I hate people in cities. This isn't the real China. I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to find the real China. And I'm like, bro, bro, you're going to realise that if you want to live in the country, it's kind of rubbish. And also everyone in the countryside has a VPN and watches, like, American movies they've got from Hong Kong. Like, dude. 
But that's what I think about when I think about Steinbeck. He wants to get to this real heart of the working man. And I'm like, dude, like, just <sighs> accept what's in front of you. When he was working as a caretaker at this country house, he met a girl called Carol, who became his first wife. She got him kind of interested in politics. There's a bit of like controversy about whether Steinbeck is a communist. He says he's not, but The Independent wrote an article um, last year, 2018, at the time of me recording this, saying that he was a Marxist. And in fact, George Orwell, um, author of Animal Farmer 1984, actually kept him on a list of potential commies. I mean, it's kind of weird. He, of course, the great ego, said, I read a piece about myself recently re written to reassure my readers that I am not a revolutionary. At the same time, the Communist Party denounces me in the same term. I hasten to inform both the extreme right and the pseudo-right, which calls itself left, that they are both wrong. I am a very dangerous revolutionary. Me and my work they do not like and have eliminated where they have the power. My books have forbidden entrance to Soviet centres, not because they are truly revolutionary, but because they are. Indeed, any criticism is construed as a revolt by the two great wings of reaction. Alright, 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 S settle down there, settle down there, Johnny. Settle down, man. But yeah, I am a revolutionary, I am standing up for the working man, blah blah blah. And actually, my mate, my mate raised this as a question when we went for lunch the other week. The whole time he's out there and he's meeting working people, he's doing it with the, um, like the safety belt, with the parachute, with mummy and daddy's money. He knows he can always go back home. And when he's married to Carol, she supported him financially. So, could he ever really get to grips with the problems that? A standard person would have it's like um no you can't really the one philosophical idea that he did really jump on was one that he made up called the phalanx p-h-a-l-a-n-x he thinks all humans as a metaphor i think are all cells within one body and we all have some kind of collective memory and function as a societal whole. We know with certain arrangements of atoms, we might have what we call a bar of iron. Certain other arrangements of atoms plus a mysterious principle make a living cell. Now that living cell is very sensitive to outside stimuli. A further arrangement of cells and a very complex one may make a unit which we call a man. That has been our final union but there are mysterious things which could not have been explained if man is the final unit he also arranges himself into larger units which i have called the phalanx the phalanx has its own memory memory of the good great tides when the moon was close memory of starvations when the good of the world was exhausted Memories of methods when the numbers of the units had to be destroyed for the good of the whole. Memories of the history of itself. And that's kind of where where we're at in terms of Steinbeck's thinking. It's when he's married to Carol. 
after years and years and years of trying to get books published that he finally wrote of mice and men it was the first one of his books to really really hit the mainstream and actually proved to be a commercial success so he's sitting there in his house in california and what is going through his head when he sits down to write of mice and men he might be remembering one of his like summer breaks from uni he worked at a ranch owned by a sugar company that his dad had also begun to work for this company did like sugar beet but um beef hay alfalfa his biographer jay perini who i've drawn on a lot in um the book i've written up for this mini series thinks that this was really important he said each ranch had a permanent staff but during certain times of the year itinerant ranch hands were hired these were the bindlesticks who eventually became the subject of john steinbeck's of mice and men broken men who wandered the countryside looking for a bit of work on this or that farm they'd do anything buck barley feed the pigs dig wells harvest fruit or vegetables mend fences Okay, so he might have been thinking of that. He might have been thinking of someone a bit more recent as well. So, 1936, he got hired by a newspaper, the San Francisco News, to hang out in California, in the San Joaquin Valley, to write a series of articles on these migrant labourers in their camps. This series ran for six days, different article every day, and it's called, and I'm grimacing, the harvest gypsies so within um some communities gypsy is considered now a slur against romany or traveler populations so i try not to use it but i want to just want to point out that steinbeck is using it in the sense of like rootless people who travel around in like an unsettled state that's the connotations he's taking from it rather than meaning like literal roma people these articles were absolutely brilliant if you google them you can find the whole set it's gorgeous they're very very long and they're very very beautiful the people he met also inspired his other book grapes of wrath that he was kind of sitting on at this point and we can to a certain extent see of mice and men as like the first draft of the grapes of wrath there are so many similarities it's really bad but we can no no i mean it's a great book it's a great book but it's just really bad when you put them next to each other and you're like this is so a first draft mate but you called it a different name <laughs> But he wants to have the poor as his heroes this is this thing that's impressed him so much about meeting these migrant workers the poor are his heroes he wrote a draft of something called something that happened okay he had this really nondescript title that removes any sense of like individual blame it's completely futile it's completely pointless everything that happens is just like a footnote something that happened but then the great <laughs> great what could have happened his dog ate the first draft i believe this is the origin of dog ate my homework excuse but the dog ate his first draft and he had to start again his bestie and his wife read him the poem to a mouse by robert burns which contains the line 
of my some the best laid schemes of mice and men gang off the glee so they often go wrong the whole purpose of this poem is that the poet robert burns is out mowing grass and he noticed he destroyed like a little mouse's house and it led him to reflect that that little mouse thought he was really safe he thought he was all set and then something he couldn't expect a scottish guy cutting his grass ruined it it's a really nice poem um but it's written in scots dialect because like robert burns really was really proud of that so i'm not even gonna try but just remember the best laid schemes of mice and men often go wrong we could say actually the poem is an allusion to lenny it sums up his personality he's kind but he doesn't realize his own strength the other thing that was going through steinbeck's mind when he wrote this was the theater he refers to of mice and men as an experiment he wanted a book that could be turned into a play but with like no effort no adaptation you just sort of tipex out a little bit and it's a script he said i find it difficult to read plays and in this i do not find myself alone the printed play is read almost exclusively by people closely associated with theater by students of the theater by the comparatively small group of readers who are passionately fond of the theatre. The first reason for this form, then, is to provide a play that will be more widely read because it is presented as ordinary fiction, which is a more familiar medium. He set this up with the opens and closes of chapters. He said there must be no entrance into the thoughts of a character unless those thoughts are clearly exposed in dialogue. People cannot wander around geographically unless the writer has provided some physical technique for making such wanderings convincing on stage. The action must be close built and something must have happened to the characters when the curtain has been lowered on the final line. This explains the um, intense setting, by the way. That whole page of this is the bunkhouse, this is the box we put our neck scarves in. And then in Crooks's room, like, these are his glasses. This is his dictionary. The thing is, when Of Mice and Men was written, his publishers weren't really fans of it. They didn't really get it. They thought it was too enclosed a setting for the amount of deaths which happened. Steinbeck disagreed. Being an edgelord, <laughs> said, I'm sorry you do not find the new book as large in subject as it should be. I probably did not make my subjects and symbols clear. The microcosm is rather difficult to handle, and apparently... I did not get it over. The earth long, the earth longings of Eleni, who was not to represent insanity at all, but the inarticulate and powerful yearning of all men. This appeal totally worked. It got included in something called the Book of the Month Club, which is a subscription service that delivered a book every four weeks. He was nervous. <laughs> and he hated it. <laughs> because it's Steinbeck. The reviews were pretty good. I mean, they were kind of mixed. One of the nicer ones was all but one of the persons in Mr. Steinbeck's extremely brief novel are subhuman if the range of the human is understood to coincide with the range thus established by fiction. Brilliant. Uh, I mean, subhuman. Great. It's also, I've got, I love this as a fact, one of the most banned books in American libraries not because of you know the amount of times they say the n-word or when people die it's because it's anti-business okie doke so this is published this gives Steinbeck the push that he needs to go forward and do the rest of his writing 
His marriage to Carol breaks up and he was not especially pleasant to her at any point. Uh, A bit more on that when I talk about Curly's wife. And he marries a lovely lady called Gwen. He meets her at a nightclub. He's very much older than she is. And as far as I can tell, he drinks and basically just cheats on her constantly. They have two sons together and he kind of just bowls along quite nicely. Their marriage ends in a very, very, very bitter divorce where a lot of things are said on both sides, which are really, really horrible. Steinbeck did achieve a lot after the writing of Of Mice and Men. He consulted with the president on how to use writing as propaganda in the Second World War. He did a lot more journalism. He went to the USSR. He wrote movie scripts and got very involved in Hollywood. He married his third and final wife and they seem to have had a measure of happiness together. He got weirdly obsessed with King Arthur, bought a house somewhere in the West Country to try and find the mythical Camelot because he's Steinbeck and he just does any dang thing that he likes. And one of the things that he is most famous for is the fact that he was awarded the Nobel Nobel Prize for Literature, most notably shared with Bob Dylan, which makes him officially a Dylan buddy, which we like a lot. His speech goes down in history about the power of the writer, the power of the words which a writer chooses to use, not just the power that they have in the book, but the power that they have to change the world. And in some ways that is sort of the best memorial he can ever leave. And the best way to finish this is just to reflect as he did on the power of what he's saying and what he could do with it. The other thing I want to finish on is my dad doesn't like Steinbeck when I told him I was recording this episode. He said it's not worth bothering with, he's just a thug. So (laughs) we have the experts, we have the Nobel Prize committee and we have my dad's opinion. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back next week talking us a little bit more about of mice and men str8 talk english on twitter straighttalkingenglish.com find me on patreon donate your pennies remember the full context series is out on amazon and the companion volume for of mice and men will be out hopefully hopefully before the end of the year right thank you very much i will speak to you next week